Hey everyone, it's Hibba here. Today, we're re-airing a couple of stories that we originally published in 2017, an episode called Not Just My Hijab. We'll share stories by two different women and their relationships with their hijab. Because we find that hijab often is seen as this static, monolithic thing, and of course it's not that simple. Every Muslim woman who chooses to wear or chooses not to wear the hijab has a different understanding and experience of it. And in these next stories, we're going to dig into some of that gray area. This is Kerning Cultures, radio documentaries from the Middle East. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination And you're listening to Kerning Cultures Do you want to start us off? I think, I think you should start us off Yeah, I think I should start since this sparked my interest in the first place This is Rizana Zayani, Kerning Cultures co-founder As an Arab, I've actually never heard of someone struggling with their own hijab I've only heard two opinions. Either a woman is all for it or all against it. And those opinions make up so much of the discourse around us. And as Kerning Cultures, we love telling the stories of the in-between. As always, we're not here to condone wearing the hijab, not wearing the hijab. We just felt like these ladies should share their stories. Act 1, Khalisa. I guess my childhood feels like a lot of road trips. My parents played Cat Stevens in the car and we'd fight over the aux cable. We're always like the goofy Stevens. I'm Khalisa Stevens. I'm American Malaysian. I was born in Iowa. We moved to Malaysia. I did preschool in Malaysia and then we moved to Kuwait. I'm the eldest of four kids. And so the six of us were like our own little tribe. I think we lived a fairly charmed life. We're not rich, but living in the Middle East has afforded us a lot of luxuries. So we were able to fly between the States and Malaysia every year. Our religion played a huge role. My dad, when he met my mom in this like international students conference or something in Iowa, she was wearing hijab and he thought she was a Hindu. Uh, He'd never met anyone who wasn't a white Protestant Iowan. But then she told him she was Muslim. And this was the 80s, so he had to drive to Chicago to find a Quran. He converted to Islam, and they got married. Uh, My dad was very serious. You know that honeymoon phase when people convert? His beard was as long as my mom's hijab. It was like a competition between them when you look at their old photos. My white family, they were pretty tolerant just because my dad was sort of living this average Iowan teenage life, like dropping in and out of school, dabbling with drugs, alcohol problem, not getting anywhere in life. And then suddenly he cleaned up his act and he quit drugs and he quit drinking and he started studying and he graduated from his degree and he's like, guys, I want to marry this chick. And they're like, okay, well, if she's the reason why you've cleaned your act, like, that's fine. So my dad got a job as a fluke to Kuwait University. Kuwait University was hiring like crazy because this was right after the Gulf War. My parents really wanted Islam to be the center of our lives. So... We would go to Jama'a prayers as a whole family, three girls and one boy, but it was all of us, mom, dad, everyone. I just turned 12 or something and all the slightly older girls were putting on hijab and my parents were like, oh, when are you putting on hijab? And it was a given. 
in my family and in my community that the girls would. And I, I hadn't gotten my period yet, and that's usually when you put on the hijab. And my parents were like, yeah, that'll be around the corner, you know, when you're 13, that's the age. But, uh, you know, when do you want to put it on? So we were getting into talks, and I was like, okay, maybe after summer so I can swim in pools and stuff when we go back to the States. And after summer, I'll put on hijab and wear a bra and wear high heels. So it was a coming of age thing for me. I just remember putting it on and, you know, Kuwait and our community, it wasn't a big deal. You know, it was just like, oh, you're wearing it, mashallah, okay. And moving on, you know? Everyone knew I was still like this goofy kid, like in prepubescent stages, you know? It's just a, okay, awkward, lumpy dump kid is like putting on the hijab now. One by one, the three of us ended up putting on the hijab. And uh, that made four of us in the family which you can imagine after 9-11, flying back into the States for Mahajabas and a, a white guy and like a little boy <laughs> at the same time. And then sometimes with my dad to look at his passport, like, oh, Mark M.S. Stevens. Oh wait, the M is Muhammad? And <laughs> so we'll all get randomly checked. There was not one year where I wasn't checked when I wore hijab. Over time, I started to become very bitter. It's this feeling of being rejected from what should be home. Even these like small microaggressions, like your English is so good. Like, thanks, my parents are English teachers. And it made me feel like, you know, there's like some club and they don't like me. It's hard to feel like you're being ignored by the cool kids, you know? And especially when you are technically genetically part of the cool club, but they're not letting you join. During the 9-11 years, I was a very exemplary Muslim, I guess, or a very exemplary hijabi. People who wanted to ask about Islam or debate or stuff, I was always up for it. I was always ready to defend myself. It wasn't about so much defending Islam as like defending my community. It was just also, a, I think I was just a really impassioned kid. I was getting into arguments with everyone. So it was a very taxing uh teenagehood, I guess. We were so comfortable and goofy and zany. It wasn't hard for us to make friends. But even here in, in Dubai, I went to a high school where sometimes there were kids who transferred from the UK and just uh, immediately be dismissive. So for these new kids to come and snub us, the rest of the school would be acutely aware that it's because of the hijab. And most of the time we'd win them over and sometimes we didn't. But it took those years of fighting that's why six, six, eight years later, I just got really tired where I'm like, oh my God, why am I doing this? Like, I feel like I'm responsible for entire religion, which I don't think I am. I'm responsible for answering for an entire community, which I don't think I am. One of my mom's uh, non-Muslim colleagues was like, Khalisa, I caught you smoking one day by the library. That's really bad. And I was like, I know. She's like, yeah, especially since you cover. I was like, wait, not because of the cancer? <laughs> like, you're, you're concerned for my reputation? You're not even Muslim, get out of here. I really wanted anonymity. I just wanted to disappear and just be left alone. I used to really believe that hijab was part of the faith, but over time, once I started to realize in college, uh, taking all these like humanities courses and talking with other people and being exposed to like Fatima Mernisi or uh, Huda Sharawi and stuff, it made me kind of realize that you can be Muslim without hijab. And religion can be personal. It doesn't have to be a billboard. And that really 
event over time, hijab represented to me more like a warrior's mm. shield. Like if you put on this shield, you have to be ready to fight. And I was tired and I don't want to fight anymore. <laughs> I just wanted everyone to leave me alone and just uh, have religion be my personal thing. Um, but being in college, you know, students that I respect in class would invite me out and then they'd order drinks or something. And I'd have to sort of reconcile these competing ideas of like what's right and wrong. You know, these good people drink, is that wrong? Does that make them bad? Uh, it was an evolution, very long drawn out evolution where because I'd been excluded for so long, whenever I go back to the States, I just wanted people to see me as complex and acceptable and see what I'm about. And that made it easier for me to accept others around me. And people who don't pray, people who party, people who have sex outside of marriage. And uh, when I started to feel like what they were doing is not wrong, that's when it was occurring to me that maybe taking it off won't be wrong. Translating into action was very hard, but it would be another two years before I take it off. Actually, it was just a very painful family experience. And for me, it was like ripping off a Band-Aid. I'm just going to tell them, they're going to be upset, and then we'll all get over it. And I was trying to prime them for this conversation where I'm like, how do you feel about women who don't wear hijab, but they call themselves Muslim? And they were like, no, of course, you know, in Islam, you're supposed to accept, blah, blah, blah. But once the conversation came, my parents were not okay. And I had to, not had to, I just waited another two years before I actually took it off just because the subject was just so painful. And my family was so close. It just didn't feel right to have like any bad blood between us, you know, because now we want to go out to Chili's and go watch a movie like old times. And, you know, am I going to bring this up again? And, and for those two years, it was just a lot easier to keep it on and like love my family and have them love me back than like cause all this discomfort. Sometimes it was just like, oh, okay, okay, I'm sorry. I'll just keep it on. <laughs> just because, uh, like, I'd never faced such a huge disruptive challenge in my life before that. I think with my dad, it was, honestly, it was lazy parenting. Because his reaction was like, if you take it off first, then next thing you know, you're going to be at bars or something with guys. And I was just like, I was really offended as a Mahajiba. Like, you think this is a chain or a cage to keep me trapped so I don't go out? The hijab doesn't stop you from doing these things. Like, that's your own moral code. And then I was, like, challenging my parents with the stuff that I'd learned, you know. My parents' initial reaction was like, wow, you read, like, one book, and now you think you're the expert. And so I went back with more books, and eventually, like, I overheard my mom talking to a friend during these, like, difficult years. And she was like, you know, with these kids, like, you tell them one thing and then they come back with another. And it's genuinely hard to argue sometimes. And I was like, whoa, I think I'm convincing my mom. You met your husband when you wore hijab. So he knows you, like, with and without, obviously. But you said he didn't care, but you really <laughs> cared. Can you tell me more about that? Um... He met me and we liked each other and he thought I was cute. And then one day I was like telling him, you know, I'm planning to take this off. What do you think? He was just like, okay. And I'd never met anyone who didn't have an opinion on this, you know, very controversial topic. I was like, are you serious? You don't care? Does that mean you don't care about me? He's like, you're your own person. And uh, but if you want to keep it on or take it off, it's fine. And I was just like, what is this? Like this person who doesn't care that I have full autonomy or full agency and 
no protectiveness. Not that I wanted him to be protective. It's just I thought he'd feel one way or another. He was just like, no, it's cool. I mean, it's your decision. I don't have a say in it. It's I can't tell you what to do. Oh my God, you're like amazing and horrible <laughs> at the same time. Whereas my sister ended up taking it off sooner than I did, uh, just because she was kind of the rebel child. My parents would be like, we are not a skinny jeans family. And she'll just go ahead and wear skinny jeans and <laughs> with her hijab, but like a long shirt, you know? I didn't realize my sister had been suffering depression, actually, dealing with the hijab. Her experience with it was so different. She intensely felt excluded from the mainstream narrative. And her British friends and her friends who drank and her friends who partied, she'd been battling with her own demons. And I think she's tried to talk to me, but back then I was the golden child. I'm like, no, Islam needs to be defended. And I think she tried to talk to my mom and my mom had managed to convince her that like, no, this is the right way and you have to keep it on. And I only know this now that because she's told me later that she had just come to accept that she needs to wear hijab forever. When one day I turned around and I was like, I think I'll take it off. And her reaction was like, no, you don't. <laughs> and she found these pamphlets from the mosque and she was slipping them under my door. And it was just like, why I chose hijab, a woman's story. <laughs> I was like, why would you let me be who I am? And she's like, because I can't. I was like, whoa, I didn't even know you were going through that. Like, that's how she felt like she's been denied. Whereas I just feel like I changed. So she took it off one year before I did. I still didn't have the guts. Like, it kind of came down to cowardice. But I adjusted my dressing a little bit. Like I started wearing my hijab up, kind of gypsy style, and shorter sleeves and stuff. And my parents didn't really say anything. And then it gave me so much empathy for, for other hijabis. Because it's so easy, like when you're, when you're so comfortable in your faith and you believe everything and you practice a certain way, like there's a lot of judgment. I mean, I think we all know that there's a lot of judgment within like hyper-religious circles. So I used to judge these other girls like she's not even wearing the hijab properly. Why doesn't she just take it off instead of showing like half her hair or wearing a mini skirt with tights? Like, who's she fooling? And then when I went through that weird transition, I was just like, oh, my God, this is probably what they're going through. Like all these like half hijabis probably want to take it off. And just there's so much social pressure and family pressure. Like you can't. It's, and it's, it feels like real pressure. I couldn't sleep. It was hard to breathe sometimes. And uh you know, going against my family and, and what felt like sort of my faith, but then denying myself, my authentic self, you know? It was an interesting couple of years in transition. And it was a transition, like my hijab was getting smaller and uh, it was turning into a stylish turban and uh, I was wearing like lower collared neck shirts and stuff. The first couple of weeks were kind of unreal. I was still facing reactions on campus where people were like, wait, you're Khalisa, but I thought, you know. But once it normalized, that's when I just felt like this huge burden was taken off of me, mainly because I could stop pretending because I felt like a hypocrite for the last two years. I just felt like every single day since then has just been like, I'm more sure of my identity. Like, this is who I am. I just felt like I was finally free to be myself. But I continued to be really outspoken for Islam. And that's what I found really shocking because I thought once I took it off, that discourse and stuff will be behind me and I can, you know, practice it the way I want to on a personal level. But I like having that choice because if I'm around someone who's obviously belligerent and ignorant of Islam, I can choose to get engaged this person or I can choose to walk away. 
which is really freeing. When I wore it, you know, I was not put in that kind of position to choose because this person would be targeting me. And it wasn't something I could easily walk away from. And it wasn't something that I could talk from my own perspective. I would be speaking from the Mahajiva perspective, which is so complex, but everybody sees it as just one monotonous, static, monolithic position. Okay. So this thing has to be pretty close to your mouth. Act two, it's a fact. Like right here-ish. Okay. <laughs> I just will ignore it. Yeah, it's invisible. <laughs> I continue to wear the hijab today because it reminds me when I put it on every morning to recommit myself to the principles of justice and mercy and my my personal commitment not only to god but to stand up for to to make that justice the divine justice sort of a reality on earth my name is Ertafa Binte Farid. I'm a Bangladeshi Muslim American. I grew up in Bangladesh, so I was born there and I was there until I was 12. Um, and my village is like right on the border with India. So that's where my father is from. My parents are both doctors. My father was a psychiatrist and my grandmother took care of me most of the day because my mother was a medical student. I grew up with a skeleton in our living room. Um, and my first show and tell, I took the hip bone of the skeleton as the piece to show and tell. And my family's pretty religious. My father prays five times a day, um, never really misses a prayer. I just grew up with the idea that faith is really important, that God is important. Bangladesh is a Muslim country, it's changed now, but as I was growing up, it was more of a culturally Muslim country. You know, everybody knew they were Muslim. They're like 96% of the population is Muslim. So it wasn't something that we really talked about. We never talked about, you know, we are Muslim. It wasn't something to discuss. My parents didn't make me pray. Um, they didn't make me fast. They didn't let me fast a full month until I was 14. And I had been begging to do it since I was like eight because it was so cool. You know, you knew you were a grown up when you did that. When we moved here in the U.S., um, I started covering between the summer between middle school and high school. I was about to turn 14, I think. I don't think I was 14 yet. And part of it was that everybody kept asking me, like, to speak for Muslims to an extent. And it was the first time in my life I had had to do that. People were seeing the same stories on the news about, you know, why we're going to war in Afghanistan as I was. And for me, it was confusing because I was like, the way Islam was being portrayed was not what I had grown up with. I was just like, that's not what, you know, what it looks like. Why do you do this? Why do you do that? I got a lot of these questions and I didn't always have an answer. Um, so I would go to Sunday school and I'd ask the questions and then I'd get back to people. But it was, I, I felt like I was speaking about Islam and it was still about Islam. It wasn't about myself because I hadn't really figured out how to see myself as like Muslim first, you know. I hadn't grown up thinking of myself as Muslim and that being an important category because everybody was. Part of me wanting to wear the hijab came from like a fear that people wouldn't be as accepting of me in high school as they were in middle school. And so I was like, you know what, if they're not going to like me for me, then I'm going to give them. I don't know. It was like a, if I, if they don't like me, I can deflect it onto the hijab then than me. But I know the reason I started to wear it. So these were all sort of there in the back of my thinking. But then I was at the mosque one day. So people would walk in and they would put on a scarf, you know, they would cover their hair. And so I, I always went in 
already with the dupatta, which is the long thing, I would just wrap it sort of around my head. I think it was a Friday because I went with my dad. And then when I walked out, it felt really stupid to me to take it off because in my head, I was like, if I believe, if I actually accept that God asks us to do this, and if I believe God is everywhere, then why do I only wear it in the mosque? Like, it's not like he's only in the mosque, you know? So when I left, I just looked at Baba and I was like, can I just keep wearing this? And he was like, sure. We walked through downtown mall and I was like, oh God, this is so weird. This is so weird. This is so weird. But I think it was weirder in my head. Nobody stopped me. Nobody yelled at me. You know, nothing actually happened. So then I went home. I thought about it some more and I told my parents, I'm going to wear the hijab. And Baba was like, oh, you meant like forever? I just thought you meant like that day. <laughs> and they actually tried really hard to convince me not to do it. Like my parents were also really afraid of me going to high school. The U.S. was just starting to talk about maybe going to war. I mean, already there were all these stories about Muslim women being attacked in New York and big places. And so they were like, don't do it. You're a kid. Like you have no idea what responsibility you're taking on yourself. Wait until you're in college. And I told them that, nope, I'm going to do it now because I don't know if I don't do it now, who knows if I'll ever do it. And I think that's absolutely true. I don't think I would have done it later. But I think the fear was that if I once I put on a scarf, once I put on a hijab, that's how it will always be seen. It would never be just Irtifa, it would be Irtifa the Muslim girl. And so, like, in the halls that first semester, I heard things like, you know, Osama's sister or go back to where you came from and I was just like I just laughed I was like I'm not even Afghan <laughs> you know like I was like what learn your geography um the only time that I really got upset I was going to lunch and I had been I was like just a little late I didn't leave with the rest of the class when they left I was packing up or I don't know what I was doing but I was I was separated from the group I usually go with so I was just walking to go to the cafeteria and so the door to the cafeteria really bottlenecks at one point so I was stuck in this really crowded hallway with people and someone pulled my hijab from the back so it really like pulled my whole head back and I actually like now if that happened my first instinct would be fear but I was so angry I turned around and I was like who did that and no one said anything it was like a crowd of people and what really bothered me is that not only did the person not say anything no one who had seen it said anything and all I said was cowards, and I walked away. I think when I was younger, it was fine because I saw it as like my mission to like, like I said, I will prove them wrong. I will show them that a hijabi woman can be empowered. Like Islam doesn't have to be disempowering for women. But I think the older I get, the more frustrating it becomes because it is, it, I just want, like I am wearing the hijab and I kind of want it to just be a part of who I am without it becoming like, a statement like I know I'm marking myself out by wearing this but at the same time like that doesn't erase me it's not supposed to erase my personality my individuality like it is a conscientious choice and it does affect how I interact with people but again I have like good days where I'm like yes I did I'm I'm like being a good hijabi you know in the normative sense and then the days where I'm like I really don't want to do this not the not wearing the hijab I just don't want to I don't want to have to explain to people I don't want to have to explain my presence I don't want to have to do this so like one example there was some terrorist attack somewhere in the world and I was taking the bus and I was really upset either because of the news or something happened in my personal life. But I remember like looking up and there were there were like people staring at me and I had to consciously be like, OK, don't be angry, smile. And it was just that moment. And then I came to my department and I just sat down and I was just really upset. And I had to like talk to someone and be like, you know, I can't even be angry um, in public. 
So I'm getting emotional now again, but it's just little things like that. That's not, it doesn't, one instance doesn't bother you, but it builds up. I never told my mother or my sister that they had to cover, right? But all the signals I got from the Muslim community was that I was a better Muslim because I covered my hair, because I could recite more surahs, because I was more visibly present in the mosque, because I sort of like was more visually Muslim. I was seen as somehow better at being a Muslim. And for a long time, I didn't question that. I sort of was like, yeah, it's my job to teach them. One of the reasons I consider taking it off is I get to have a platform and a voice in the Muslim community. I get to ask questions about patriarchy within Islam to an extent because I wear the hijab. Like people don't automatically sort of disregard my questions. Versus if my sister asked the same question and my sister is better about praying than I am, and I'll just put that out there right now. If she asked the question, unless people knew her and knew that she is pretty practicing, people would maybe dismiss her as like, you know, this godless feminist. And that's something that I really struggle with. Then my dad got sick a couple of years ago. And when he was, when the doctors told us, you know, like he had to have emergency surgery and stuff. And so the doctors told us, say goodbye. We don't know if he's going to make it back. And so we were all like, I was a hot mess. But my dad was just like, if I have to meet God today, if today is my day, I have nothing to regret, but I don't think it's my day. And he's here. He's fine. He's doing much better. But just that I was. And then like while he was in the ICU and he was recovering on Friday, he would be like, I have to go to Jama. I have to go to Jama. And I was like, Baba, you have like a wire stuck in your your stomach is still open. Like you have not been sewn back together. You cannot go to Jama. You know, but he was so he was so like, I have to go to Jama. Like I have to stand in front of God. And I was like, you can pray from here. God will cure you. He will understand. So he did. And he was like drugged up. You know, he had like. More than morphine because morphine wasn't working for working for him. He should have been completely out of it, but that was his thought. And the nurses came in and he kept explaining to everybody what Jamaat is, why Friday is special, how we pray. And I just remember being like, oh, my God, I, I don't have that courage. I don't have that strength of faith, I don't think. It just really showed me, it just really amazed me that I grew, I had been taught to think that because of, because of all these things I do or sort of way I dress or whatever it is, um, that it had any indication of my faith, like my internal faith. And during those two weeks, when I saw my parents sort of go through this, I was like, that is absolutely false. Like their faith is stronger than I think mine will ever be. And so since then, I've started to really think about it. And it's, again, I'm sort of ashamed of myself that it took me this long. Um, I mean, it was frustrating to me before that people would think that my mom is somehow less Muslim or less of a good Muslim than I am. But that really, really, really affected me. And I don't want, that was one of the reasons I was like, you know what, I just want to show people that the hijab does nothing. Like, it's nothing unless it's something that comes from within. This episode was produced by Rizana Zayani and myself, Hiba Fisher, with sound design by Mohamed Khaizat. This version you heard today was edited by Alex Atak. 
This is our final episode of 2018, and we're working on some really exciting stories for 2019, which we cannot wait to share with you. Dear listeners, see you in the new year.